Money, it's something we all use. And if you live in a developed economy, your money likely doesn't just live under your mattress. At least, I hope it doesn't. Between the time you get paid and the time that you go to spend it, your money is living somewhere. And that place is called the bank. But in recent decades, a new form of technology has emerged and given rise to what are known as fintech or financial technology companies. You see, these are businesses that use software and computer networks to automate and manipulate financial transactions. Examples include businesses like Visa, SoFi, PayPal, or Coinbase. New financial technology companies are popping up every year and gaining a greater share of people's attention and their digital wallets. So that brings up the question, why do we even need traditional financial institutions anyway? Do they still have relevance in today's world, especially with the rise of things like cryptocurrencies? We'll find out the answers to these questions today on Stock Stories. What is a bank anyway? Well, they lend money and facilitate economic movement in society. Banks are highly regulated and are protected by the government because big bank collapses can be disastrous for an economy. That's why bailouts happened in 2008. Now, if we go back further in history, the idea of banking was independently created by many cultures, from the Romans to the Greeks to Iran, India, Germany, England, and others. Now, in America's early days of independence, there used to be hundreds of currencies issued by all sorts of local banks. Now, this kind of happened naturally because people were trying to transact in a way that was a step beyond just bartering for goods and services. But the problem with this was that it was hard to tell how much a banknote was really worth because there was really no standard that everyone could measure against. This problem was solved in 1863 when President Abraham Lincoln signed into law the National Currency Act. And what this did was it established something called the Office of the Comptroller and Currency, and the job of this office was to create the foundation of a national banking system. And in fact, it's a national banking system that still exists in America today. With this system, now banks around the country could share a common currency that looked the same. And if one bank failed, your money wasn't lost. You could get the same type of cash from the government, just at a different bank. The result of this was that over time, people began to gain confidence in the system because they considered their money essentially risk-free. And the reason they felt this way is because they knew that it was backed by a government that they already placed their trust in. The government has the ability to change laws, the ability to raise taxes, for instance. So the government could effectively guarantee that their money was going to be there and it was going to be worth something. All right, banks have clear historical importance, but how does a bank actually make money? Well, the basic idea is that it borrows money from people and then it lends it out to other people. On the money that it borrows, it pays a certain amount of interest, which you can think of as quote unquote paying rent to hold money. On the money that it lends, it collects interest. Now banks are designed such that the interest rate on the money it lends is much higher than the interest rate on the money it borrows. The difference is called interest income. The other major way banks make money is with fees, and these get paid by customers for doing different services, such as opening up and managing accounts or executing special types of transactions for them. At its most basic level, banks make money by collecting interest and fee income. That's how they make their profits. 
Now, banks have been critical for helping economies grow because they help money flow between people, businesses, and the government. Just imagine if banks didn't exist in the early formation of this country or if they didn't exist today. Where would you store your money? How would you borrow money in order to start a business, for example? Over the decades, thousands of small, local, and regional banks were gradually consolidated into a handful of major banking institutions. And because the industry has always been highly regulated, it made economic sense. These smaller businesses were able to pool their resources together and achieve greater economies of scale. Today, there are four major banks in the United States that control a significant amount of assets. There's J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. Combined, they hold over $8.4 trillion in assets. That's about 40% of the entire market. And that's why in cities and suburbs across America, you see branches of these banks pretty much everywhere you look. Now, as society has evolved, technology has evolved with it. And specifically, the evolution of the internet has allowed innovation in how money flows through society. With software, we can move money around in a fundamentally different way than our parents or our grandparents were ever able to. We just whip out our phones and our computers to do most transactions now. And with this evolution came a new brand of company, the FinTech company, which stands for Financial Technology. As a society, we moved from gold to cash to checks to credit cards to now electronic payments and even cryptocurrencies. Peer-to-peer -peer businesses like Venmo and the Cash App allow us to quickly send money to a family member or, say, split the bill when we're out with our friends. And fintech is growing fast. The fintech industry is expected to grow 20% annually over the next four years. That's a lot of growth. And these businesses are changing the financial landscape in different ways. For example, Robinhood, which is the app for retail investors, they changed investing with its game-like app that offers quote-unquote free trades to retail investors. And then you have SoFi, which grew out of a project from Stanford Business School students that evolved from a lending platform for the educated and affluent to a massive tech platform that now processes over $6 billion in loans. And then you have Coinbase, a leader in the decentralized finance space that has over 100 million users and $96 billion in crypto assets on their platform. So aren't all these companies going to make banks irrelevant? What's the point of opening up a checking account with a Chase or a Bank of America if we're moving toward a decentralized crypto economy? Or are we? So why don't the big banks fear these new companies? Well, one of the reasons is that some fintech companies will succeed massively, but many will not make it. In any new industry, there's this gold rush mentality, and that spurs a lot of innovation to happen at a fast pace, but innovation is precisely what ends up destroying a lot of competitors. Only a few will survive. Robinhood rose to prominence during the pandemic, but failed to keep users who saw investing as a sort of lottery that they could play with meme stocks. These casual investors soon abandoned the platform when the newness wore off. Quarterly revenue fell from a high of $565 million in the second quarter of 2021 to just $300 million less than a year later. Coinbase looks like it can become a leader in the cryptocurrency space. That is, if its financing holds up long enough for it to actually make money consistently in the long term. Now, profits in 2020 and 2021 were good for this company, but a big decline in the price of Bitcoin in 2022 
has meant that one out of five employees had to be laid off and profits quickly turned to losses. Another reason that the big banks don't fear fintech companies is that what makes fintech companies unique in many instances is easily copied by large institutions. Let's look at the payment sector for an example. Services like PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo that were once unique and quickly adopted by millennials several years ago now have real competition. In 2011, a product called Clear Exchange was introduced, and this was created by a few of the big banks in order to compete in the peer-to-peer -peer payment space. Now known as Zelle, this payment platform is integrated within the apps of major banks. In fact, Zelle is owned by Bank of America, Truist, Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, PNC Bank, US Bank, and Wells Fargo. Now, those are seven of the top 10 largest banking institutions in America, and they all control this one platform. It's now a thriving platform that processed $155 billion in payments last quarter. That's a lot of money. Also, when it comes to crypto, big banks are already integrating crypto assets into their portfolios. Now, I do expect that cryptocurrencies will receive further scrutiny and regulation in the future, but the technology underlying it is probably here to stay. Traditional banks now offer many funds where high net worth individuals can invest in crypto assets in a more diversified way without having the same concentration exposure as, say, buying and holding individual types of cryptocurrencies. JP Morgan has some funds like this. Another problem with fintech companies that would want to compete with traditional banks directly is the regulatory requirements. Those still act as a large barrier of entry for banks. SoFi recently actually became a bank, but there are a few others who have shown that they can disrupt at that level of scale. And you see, regulations are needed because money is such an integral part of society. I mean, we've seen what happens when banks go off the deep end, for example, in the subprime mortgage crisis of 2007 to 2009. Banks have to meet standards at both state and federal levels, depending on their charter. And this includes things like having a certain amount of money in reserves, enacting privacy and anti-money laundering protections, and more. Now, regulations are revised and monitored by a group of bankers from the world's largest economies called the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, or the BCBS. It's based in Basel, Switzerland, and issues a series of complex guidelines that tell banks how much money they need to have on hand in order to prevent a crisis. Now, as you can see, the world of finance is a lot bigger and more complex than a cool software application developed for a very specific use case. Not only do many fintech companies not have what it takes to compete in the marketplace, generally speaking, but many other once unique features are already being adopted by big banks. Add to this the regulatory requirements that banks must adhere to in order to even operate, and we can see that the ecosystem of fintech and banks are very much related, but different. Money will always need a place to live, and banks have existed in some form for centuries to serve that purpose. Now, new technologies are being built around money that will only serve to fill the gaps that large banking institutions aren't already filling, but they probably don't place much of a threat to these companies' business models, at least not directly. So as an investor, what can you do? Well, keep in mind that bank stocks are pretty cyclical, but you can make a lot of money with them. Now, if you're interested in financial stocks, it might be wise to look at both newer fintech companies as well as traditional banks so that they can complement each other within your portfolio. As global economies continue to grow, both of these areas of the finance world should prove profitable to investors. 
So I think that many banks and fintech companies can coexist. And in fact, I see many fintech companies becoming more like traditional banks over time and many traditional banks becoming more like fintech companies over time because these worlds are kind of blurring with technology. So the distinction is really not so much about the type of technology being used, but in the way that people are being served by it. I'm Alex Mason, your stock storyteller, and this has been another episode of Stock Stories.